Hey, Popaganda listeners, here's a quick message from our sponsor, Oregon State University. Earn your women, gender, and sexuality studies degree online. Explore the role of race, social class, age, ability, appearance, and sexual identity. Play in women's everyday lives. Join the nation of do what you love. Push up your sleeves, make the world better. Oregon State University. Learn more at ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash WGSS. That's ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash WGSS. This is Propaganda, the feminist response to pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Merck. Okay, pop quiz. What is a legal medical procedure that's performed roughly 1.6 million times a year in the United States, but still seems to rather terrify and scandalize Hollywood? Tell me you don't want him to get an A word. Yes, I do, and I won't say it for little baby ears over there, but it rhymes with shmushmortion. That's right, abortion. One in three women in the United States will get an abortion at some point in her life. But in our pop culture and in our politics, talking about abortion is often still verboten. In recent years, though, there's been a big shift in the way we talk about abortion, both in politics and in pop culture. People who've had abortions have been able to share their stories widely on social media, though, of course, they faced a lot of pushback and some virulent hatred. Real people sharing their stories about this common and sadly still controversial procedure is helping change mainstream conversation about reproductive rights in a big way. And it's helping change our pop culture, too. In the last two years, we've seen several films and TV shows that center on characters who get abortions and presents their experiences in a non-judgmental way. From the sweet Lily Tomlin movie, Grandma. I need $600. $630. For what? I'm pregnant. To the surreal, bizarre world of Netflix comedy BoJack Horseman. But has the concept of women having choices gone too far? We've assembled this diverse panel of white men in bow ties to talk about abortion. Gentlemen. Tom, this is not just a woman's issue. I'm a man, but if I got pregnant, would I put my life on hold for a child I didn't want? Yes, I would. And I can say that with confidence because I will never have to make that decision. So how are films and TV shows telling stories about abortion? And how are those stories changing over time? There's probably nobody who studies the intersection of abortion and pop culture more than Gretchen Sisson. Hi, I'm Gretchen Sisson. I'm a sociologist at Advancing New Standards in Reproductive Health, which is part of the OBGYN department at the University of California at San Francisco. Is it I think that job title is so surprising. It's surprising to me that an OBGYN has like a sociological research arm. Yes, we have um, ANSWER, which is Advancing New Standards in Reproductive Health, which is just a a really impressive acronym in and of itself. Um, (laughs) We're uh, all different social scientists. So obviously, I'm a sociologist. Um, We have demographers, epidemiologists, public health scholars. Um, So it's a really multidisciplinary um, social science group. Gretchen and her collaborators spend a lot of their day at the office doing what we'd all probably like to be doing at the office, sitting at our desks, watching TV. It's mostly just us watching Netflix at our desks. Um, Sometimes when I'm working late, you know, I'll be on Amazon Prime at home. But, you know, it's not actually that fun. As sociologists, they're watching TV while also filling out a massively detailed spreadsheet. 
They note every detail about how TV shows and films portray abortions and abortion providers. I'll go back and, and watch and rewatch. And we're kind of, we're coding for really everything that we think will be of, you know, analytical interest. So we'll focus first on the character. So who's getting the abortion? Why is she thinking about getting the abortion? Has she given reasons? Do we know why she's made this choice? How old is she? What is her racial, ethnic background? Since 2012, the team at Advancing New Standards in Reproductive Health has been poring over every single movie and TV show that's ever been made in the United States that has a storyline dealing with abortion. But there's often something interesting and intriguing and new and positive about a scene. And there's also often something that we can frame as maybe being unrealistic or maybe could be a little bit more nuanced or could be a little bit better. Because abortion is so stigmatized, many people don't know that they know someone who's had an abortion. Uh, Many people don't hear real life abortion stories. So the fictional stories that we see on television might become especially important in forming your idea of what abortion care looks like, how safe it is, who gets abortions, why they get abortions. They have found some really interesting patterns That's what we're going to explore on today's show. Just a brief spoiler alert, we're going to talk about abortion as a plotline in the show's Scandal, Bojack Horseman, Call the Midwife, House of Cards, and Grey's Anatomy. Anyway, first off, one of the big patterns that the sociological researchers found is that TV shows and films typically present abortion as way more dangerous than it actually is. Uh, The mortality rate directly associated with the abortion procedure was about 10%. Um, And that's going back, like I said, to to films 100 years ago. So there's a couple things going on there. One is that abortion used to be more dangerous than it is today. But uh, abortion is, is still more risky on television than it is in real life. In the United States, says Gretchen. There are more deaths from abortion on TV than there are deaths in real life from abortion, even though there are over a million abortions happening in real life and maybe only 30 to maybe 40 max happening on television. Gretchen is quick to point out that just because a TV show shows an abortion that winds up leading to infection or death, that doesn't mean the storyline itself is anti-choice. A lot of these shows are set in a time period when abortion was illegal, and so women had to resort to dangerous options. One of of my favorite shows is called The Midwife, right? And that show has dealt with abortion many times, and it often deals with it in a way that's quite dangerous. For example, you see a woman self-inducing an abortion using a coat hanger, um, and then having a hemorrhage and needing a hysterectomy and being hospitalized. Or you have a woman going to an unsafe provider um, who also lapses into a coma after that abortion. You see these extremely graphic, dangerous abortions on this show. But again, these are this is in a setting where abortion was illegal. So maybe the viewer watches those and gets this idea that abortion is quite dangerous. Maybe they watch that and it reinforces the idea that abortion must be legal in order to be safe and that it is much safer today. So we can't say that by including a dangerous abortion that a a content creator is trying to say that abortion is dangerous today. But to get back to that point that people don't have that real life comparison point the on-screen stories become important. If we see over and over again that women are dying from abortions on TV, they're dealing with infertility, they're dealing with depression, they're committing suicide after they have an abortion. If we see that over and over again, 
that it, it almost doesn't matter sort of what the intent is behind that story if we don't see a wider range of outcomes. This is the case in classic movie Dirty Dancing. I've been waiting for so long now while it's most famous for its final dance sequence, Dirty Dancing is also about the trouble of obtaining an abortion during an era when the procedure was illegal. Dirty Dancing was the first time that many people saw abortion actually being discussed on screen. And I forget how old I was when I watched Dirty Dancing, but I know that I did not know what the phrase knocked up meant. Uh, my mom had to explain that to me. I think I was I think I was 11 or 12. It was a very big deal that I was getting to watch Dirty Dancing with my mom. And she had to explain uh, what was happening. I didn't understand that they were talking about abortion. Um, and, and my mom being the feminist mom that she is, uh, did did have to fill me in on some details. I mean, I think Dirty Dancing holds up in a really interesting way. I mean, the entire plotline of this film is about sort of the, the characters rallying around Penny to help her access her abortion. I mean, that's the driving motivation is how is how is she going to pay for this abortion? How can we get our money? How can we get her off of work? How can we cover for her? And baby has to learn these dance. I mean, that that's really what's behind all of this character development. And no one ever really questions that decision or that that right. Even though it was set in the 60s, it was illegal at the time that the story is set. He didn't use no ether, nothing. I thought you said he was at real MD. The guy had a dirty knife and a folding table. I could hear her screaming in the hallway, and I swear to God, Johnny, I tried to get in. I tried. One other pattern that Gretchen's team found was that the characters who get abortions on TV shows or in films don't reflect the reality of who actually seeks an abortion in real life. One of the patterns that we've really seen is that the characters seeking abortion are pretty homogenous. So um, we, they're overwhelmingly white. They are, the, the characters that are seeking abortion on TV are even whiter than all the characters on TV. So, like, we see this pattern of young, white, um, middle-class, upper-class women getting abortions on television. That's fine. There are plenty of real-life women who meet those criteria getting abortions in this country. But the problem becomes that we're missing the stories about women of color. That's part of why an episode of Scandal from the past season was particularly noteworthy. On the episode, Capitol Hill insider Olivia Pope, played by Kerry Washington, is shown in a hospital gown and hairnet getting an abortion. While Scandal is, of course, all about drama and intrigue, the scene isn't played as if it's a juicy bit of gossip. The camera is on Olivia Pope's face as the audience is left to wonder what she's thinking and how she's feeling. When her team analyzed that scandal scene, says Gretchen, they thought a lot about every detail. It was very matter of fact. It was the first time we'd seen a woman of color um, who was a primary protagonist on a show going and getting an abortion. Um, she didn't agonize over this. It was framed sort of within a, a bigger political conversation in the episode. So all of those things are really interesting and really new and in some ways really groundbreaking. Um, but then the, oh, and they showed the abortion on screen. They showed the abortion actually happening. Um, a lot of shows will cut away right before the procedure begins um, or they'll you know only show part of the scene. We actually showed, we actually saw the doctor, you know, turning on the aspiration machine, performing the abortion, that was very new. That was very radical. 
right? So we have all of these really interesting groundbreaking things about this one scene, but at the same time, she's she's in um, a surgical center or an operating room with a hairnet on, right? Most abortions in this country don't look like that. Um, and so there are political implications there, right? We might think that this abortion is a major surgery because it's taking place in a surgical center. You know, the parallels between that and what's going, what was recently happening, what was happening at the time this episode aired um, with the ambulatory surgical center requirement in Texas and the fact that they were trying to legislate that abortions had to take place in these surgical centers. Scandal is one of several extremely popular shows crafted by showrunner Shonda Rhimes, who has made clear that having characters get abortions is an important part of her work on TV. Her characters on medical dramas Private Practice and Grey's Anatomy deal with all sorts of other medical procedures. Why not abortion? Shonda Rhimes includes abortions in many of her shows. Um, and she's on the, the board of directors of the Planned Parenthood of Los Angeles. I mean, she, um, she's very clearly committed to this issue as an advocate and as a, as a producer. Probably the most talked about abortion storyline and TV in recent years came from Shondaland show Grey's Anatomy. In the eighth season of the show in 2011, Dr. Christina Yang, who's played by Sandra Oh, decides to have an abortion. Her partner is against it and is angry when she chooses to go through with the abortion. She didn't have the abortion. She wants to and she can't do it because of you, because she loves you. And instead of loving her, you're punishing her. For what? For being the woman that you fell in love this with? Isn't any of your business. Okay, do you know what will happen to Christina if she has a kid that she doesn't want? It will almost kill her. What's interesting on Grey's Anatomy is that we've seen Christina both as a provider of abortion care and as a patient in need of abortion care. Clearly, telling abortion stories on screen is complicated. In shows that have nuance, it's not treated as a black and white, good or bad situation. In a world where abortion rights are a heated political issue, on TV shows, characters are keyed into that reality too. A prime example of this is found on political drama House of Cards. In the first season of the show, political mastermind Claire Underwood, played by Robin Wright, tells her doctor that she's had three abortions. That information isn't public, though. But when a reporter asks her at a press conference about a political opponent's allegation that she's had an abortion, Claire seizes the moment. She says, If I said yes, my husband's political career would be in jeopardy. My faith would be questioned. Likely my life would be threatened. But I won't feel ashamed. Yes, I was pregnant. And yes, I had an abortion. That's a really powerful moment. But because, of course, it's House of Cards, she doesn't tell the whole truth. She figures out how to frame the issue to her best advantage. What they decide to do in the show is say that the, the abortion was for a pregnancy that was the result of a sexual assault. Um, so that's sort of how they frame this as the good abortion. So there's a lot of things going on there. And this is sort of the give and take that I mentioned earlier, right? We see a lot of really interesting things. They're dealing with abortion head on. Um, she's talking about it. She's not embarrassed by it. But at the same time, there's this need to craft the story of what's the good abortion? What's going to be the publicly acceptable abortion um, for her to talk about? In recent years, Gretchen says the biggest change that she has seen in abortion stories in pop culture has to do with one element, comedy. Can abortion be funny? Um, and we saw that with Obvious Child was out in a, 
June of 2014. Oh, my boobs hurt really bad. Maybe you're pregnant. Oh my God. You didn't use a condom with pee farter? <laughs> I remember seeing a condom. I just don't know like exactly what it did. Well, I'm accustomed to the and was this rom-com about getting an abortion uh, and was certainly the first of its kind. Uh, and I thought that was really interesting. We saw it on Girls uh, in January of 2015. And Lena Dunham specifically said about that episode that she wanted it to be so different from the typical TV abortion story that viewers at first didn't know what was going on. So in that episode, we see Mimi Rose just sort of mentioned offhand, like, oh, I can't go for a run today. I had an abortion yesterday, so I just sort of need to take it easy today, right? And this is such a contrast to sort of the agonizing decision-making and, and veiled disclosures that we've seen in the past in popular culture. The most recent TV show with an abortion storyline is actually a comedy, the Netflix animated show BoJack Horseman. The episode of BoJack Horseman that deals with abortion seems like it would be hell for Gretchen's team of sociologists to categorize. BoJack is a very surreal show where human characters and anthropomorphized animals mix and mingle in a bizarro version of Los Angeles. In this episode, human social media consultant Diane becomes unintentionally pregnant. She decides to get an abortion, but then accidentally tweets her decision from the Twitter account of a popular rock star, the no-holds-barred dolphin named Sextina Aquafina, who was inspired by the likes of Kesha and Nicki Minaj. I'll put out a statement explaining the whole mess. I am so sorry. Oh. Oh. What? Oh. Who said you could owe? Taylor Swift just tweeted that you were brave. Nicki Minaj tweeted at you a face with hard eyes. And BuzzFeed just posted a list of top 15 celebrities who should have had abortions like Sextina. Jeez, you're trending like crazy. I'm trending? Instead of being scandalized, Sextina decides to spin the news to her advantage, releasing a totally over-the-top abortion-themed pop song. The episode critiques celebrity embrace of empowerment as a marketing plan, but also deals with Diane making a sincere decision about her body and her life. How are you supposed to record all that in a spreadsheet exactly? But Gretchen found the episode to be really interesting. I mean, there were a lot of things going on in that episode. Um, first, there's the idea that she's publicly talking about getting an abortion. I mean, not even just talking about it. Like, she releases this single, uh, you know, about getting an abortion in, like, the most graphic, over-the-top terms. And she's not. She's not getting... This idea that um, the publicity of getting an abortion is is not shaming to her, right? That she embraces this, that she's perceived as brave and revolutionary. And I still don't think that most women who are publicly out about their abortion have that as their response to sharing their story. Um, I think, again, there are a lot more women telling their abortion stories. I hope that they are receiving a lot more support as they do so. But you know, what we don't see depicted um, as Sextina is sort of talking about getting this abortion are like the death threats and the backlash. And um, it's one care, it's one fictional dolphin character's story um, that will have parts of it that ring true for real women who are publicly story sharing about their abortion. Um, and then these other parts that are really missing. 
Even though TV shows and films deal with abortion in a way that's clearly fictional, whether they're starring dolphins or young Patrick Swayze's, the way abortion stories are told in pop culture matters for a real-world understanding of abortion. Now we've seen, just in the past two years, a great uptick in, in real women sharing their abortion stories and, and storytelling. And I think that that is really important. But fictional characters can still carry a lot of weight. Thanks to Gretchen Sisson for taking the time to talk with us. In addition to being a sociologist, she's also on the board of Bitch Media. If you're a sociology nerd and want to read the full studies about abortion and pop culture that she's worked on, you can find them on the website for advancing new standards in reproductive health. Propaganda is produced by nonprofit independent Bitch Media. Our feminist response to pop culture is entirely funded by our community. Love our work and want to pitch in? Become a member. Join hundreds of fellow listeners as a member of the podcast Pollinators. And when you do, you'll receive a special mug, a subscription to Bitch Magazine in print and digital, a snazzy sticker, and Listen Bitch, a brand new monthly roundup of all of our podcast shows and music reviews straight to your inbox. Become a pollinator today at bitchmedia.org slash pollinators. At the Democratic National Convention this summer, I expected the standard speeches about family and the economy and unity, etc., etc. But there was one speech that felt very different from what you usually see at huge political rallies. Someone sharing their personal story about getting an abortion. That's not something you often see on primetime national TV. The four-minute speech was given by Elise Hogue, the president of NARAL Pro-Choice America. In front of thousands of people, Elise told her story. I wanted a family, but it was the wrong time. I made the decision that was best for me, to have an abortion and get compassionate care at a clinic in my own community. A few weeks ago, as the election was heading into its final month, Elise talked with us here at Bitch about that moment and why she decided to share her story in this political context. Um, There are millions of women who have made the decision to terminate a pregnancy, who live in fear, live in shame, um, are experiencing political rhetoric that is made that is designed to make us feel less than. Um, We're seeing policies passed based on that political rhetoric that is completely out of step with um, the real lived experience of women and families in this country. And those millions of women didn't have the stage. They didn't have the four minutes, and I did. And so um, when I sat down to think about what was the highest, best use of those four minutes, um, it seemed like sharing just sharing my story and I I say that hesitatingly because I actually didn't feel like it was important to go into the details of my story because all of our stories are individual and can be and should be personal if we want them to be but to stand on the stage and self-identify as as one of the millions of women in this country who has made that decision and who has gone on to live a very full life 
Publicly sharing abortion stories on a big scale like this is one way that political rhetoric around abortion has shifted in recent years. To talk more about this shift and the way America has been talking about abortion in this presidential election, I called up Renee Bracey Sherman. Hi, I'm Renee Bracey Sherman. I'm a reproductive justice activist, and I'm the senior public affairs manager at the National Network of Abortion Funds, where I run a program called We Testify, which is an abortion storyteller leadership program focused on supporting abortion storytellers who share their stories at the intersection of race, class, geography, gender identity, um, and all other identities. And I'm also a board member at NARAL Pro-Choice America. But today, everything that I'm sharing with you and all my thoughts are my personal opinions. Let's start off talking a bit about the Abortion Stories Project that you run. Can you tell me about how the idea of publicly sharing stories about abortion on a national scale came to be? So I've been sharing my abortion story for you know, been about six, seven years now. Um, I had an abortion when I was 19. But when I had my abortion, I didn't really know anyone who'd had an abortion. Um, I had a cousin who, you know, she had told me that she had had one, but we never really talked about it that deeply. Um, And I knew that the rapper Little Kim had had an abortion. And that was kind of the extent of people I'd seen who, you know, had had them and talked about them. Um, And so for me as a biracial black woman, I really wanted to, you know, see myself represented. um, And I wanted to see people of color represented in, uh, you know, sharing their abortion stories and just talking about it in the news media, but also in pop culture. And um, something I always say is that everyone loves someone who's had an abortion. And so the more stories that we have out there, the more diversity of stories we have out there, it reminds people that it's actually really common and it's quite normal. Um, when I had my abortion, I remembered feeling so isolated and alone. And even though my family was a very, very pro-choice family, and I knew that we you know, stood with Planned Parenthood, I knew that we were pro-choice. I didn't really feel like I could go to my parents to tell them that I was pregnant because I was afraid they would be upset with me because I got pregnant by the boyfriend that they couldn't stand. Um, And I worried that they would judge me. And I do wish that I had had someone in the clinic with me. Um, I do wish that I had had someone to talk to afterwards that had also had an abortion. And so part of the reason why I do all of this work um, and sharing stories is so that folks know that they're not alone and no one feels the way that I did when I was in the clinic. What I saw when I started sharing my stories was it was a lot of like white women and older white women talking about abortion and often talking about it in a very abstract or only policy way and not actually saying, well, I had an abortion, so I know what it's like. Um, And so I want to change that. I want us to be having the conversation about people who have abortions, putting them at the center and putting those of us who are most marginalized, those of us who have multiple identities at the center of every single conversation. One thing you bring up here is how abortion is such a personal decision that ties into all the different complicated parts of your identity. But when we talk about abortion and politics, it can often become abstract and binary, like it's just a blue issue or a red issue. And I think that's something that the movement to tell more personal stories about abortion is changing in a positive way. It's bringing more nuance to these discussions. 
you know, like just making abortion legal isn't enough when it's hard to get the money to get an abortion, when you have to drive hundreds of miles to get an abortion, when there's social stigma around abortion? Well, I think it's always easy to take people's rights away if you demonize them, dehumanize them, um, and take them out of the conversation. So it's easy to pass restrictions if on, on abortion or anything if you refuse to acknowledge that the person being impacted is a human being and is even part of the conversation. So, you know, you shut people who've had abortions out of the conversation. You say that this is about regulations and that's it. Um, it makes it easier because people are like, oh, we're just arguing about mundane regulations and forgetting that it's actually impacting someone's life. Um, I think that this happens in a whole host of issues. When we're talking about terrorism, we forget that there are Muslim families who are impacted by our rhetoric and the policies that are being passed every single day. Same thing with trans folks. You know, if we're just talking about folks in an abstract and not recognizing that this is um, a human being who is standing right next to us and they will be impacted in this way. You know, it's easier to pass these just, oh, these are just bathroom rules. Like it's not that big a deal. Um, and forgetting that, you know, someone is going to be harassed based on what law you're passing. So I think there's always this like fight to try to keep us out of the room and to um, keep the conversation out of our personal experiences because when we insert ourselves and when we insert our stories, the politicians and people voting on these issues are forced to face our humanity. And here's the thing, Roe v. Wade is le keeps abortion legal, right? And yet there are countless states who have one clinic or a handful of clinics. And so we have to really be vigilant that Roe v. Wade may be legal across the nation, but if there is no clinic for you to go to, or if you can't get a day off of work because you have no sick days or because you work an hourly job and so for you to take time off to go get healthcare um, means you're unpaid or you don't have anyone to watch your kids while you go get an abortion or whatever it is, that's not actually meaning that it's accessible. So how do you feel like sharing these stories has changed the nature of political discussions this election? Um, the fact that a conversation around repealing the Hyde Amendment is center stage in the election right now is a huge shift. Um, for those who don't know, the Hyde Amendment is a annual budget rider um, that is in its 40th year as of last month. Um, and it bans federal funds from uh, being used to pay for abortion. So anyone who is enrolled in Medicaid, anyone who is in the military, um, uh, uses the Indian Health Services Insurance Plan, um, anyone who is incarcerated, folks who are being held in the immigration detention centers, uh, federal employees, and in um, the, major the vast majority of states, um, state employees, they cannot use their health insurance to pay for an abortion. So this actually leads a quarter of people on Medicaid um, to carry a pregnancy to term that they would not have otherwise. And that's actually just quite unjust because why is it that we are 
saying that, oh, because you get your health insurance through the federal government, you're not entitled to your constitutional right. You are not entitled to this type of health care. Um, and that leaves people struggling to try to figure out how to pay for these for an abortion, um, which starts at five hundred dollars. So while the Hyde Amendment has remained intact for 40 years, in the past decade or so, Republicans have realized that they're not going to be able to dismantle abortion rights at the federal level by repealing Roe v. Wade. So instead, they've shifted tactics and they're chipping away at abortion rights at a state by state level, getting legislatures in almost every state to pass laws that make it harder to get an abortion and harder for doctors to provide them. There have been fights over this all the way from Texas to Wisconsin. And these laws are pushed by Republicans with the language of, quote, protecting women's health and safety. Like, we need to make it harder to get an abortion as a safety issue. Can you talk about that rhetoric and the paternalism that's apparent there? (laughs) Um, Well, first off, it's utter bullshit. um, Because if they actually cared about health and safety, they would actually read all of the research that shows that abortion is one of the safest medical procedures ever. Um, it's actually like 14 times safer than carrying a pregnancy to term. Um, and that was actually something that came out in the whole women's health, the Hellerstedt case was that abortion is extremely safe. And by Texas shutting down abortion clinics through HB2, they were actually making abortion quite unsafe because, you know, they were denying people access. Um, additionally, the folks who seem to care so much about, you know, people carrying these pregnancies to term and women's health and all of those things, they say nothing on the issues around um, maternal mortality. Um, and that is something that impacts black women at a extremely higher rate than it does like white women, right? But they're not actually doing anything about that. They're not doing anything about any other like healthcare issue. They're not trying to make sure that people have access to insurance. They're not trying to make sure that Medicaid is expanded. It is literally about trying to deny access to autonomy through this one healthcare procedure. Um, and their language has very much gone to like, oh, we're pro-women, we're pro-life, were compassionate. Um, one that they use a lot is uh, women deserve better than abortion. And they're using it to try to kind of say that, you know, those of us who choose abortion are being preyed upon by, you know, evil abortion providers when that's not true. Abortion providers are extremely compassionate. Mine held my hand during my procedure. But what they're trying to do is just like say that, you know, women are dumb. They don't know what they're really getting into, um, they're being duped. They're, you know, being taken advantage of by these money hungry abortion providers. And it couldn't be further from the truth. Um, and it is extremely patronizing because they refuse to admit that, yes, those of us who have abortions, we choose it freely. Um, we have agency and we know what's best for our lives. Um, for me as a a black woman who's had an abortion, like I hear a lot of people, you know, saying, well, Margaret Sanger, or it's black genocide. And, you know, you're not trying to save your people and all of this stuff. And that I'm a race trader for supporting access to abortion. It is true that black women are five times more likely to have an abortion. And that is because 
We're lacking access to consistent um, access to healthcare and birth control. Um, and they're not doing anything to try to fix that, to alleviate that as an issue. Um, they're also not doing anything to support the black mothers whose children are being shot in the street by police officers or community vigilantes. Um, so, you know, when they talk about they want to support, you know, women and black motherhood and all of these things, they're not there where we're saying we actually do need them. They're not understanding what reproductive justice is, which is ensuring that everyone has the rights and ability and resources to decide if, when, and how to become a parent and to be able to parent their children with dignity and respect. Abortion came up in the last presidential debate. The language that Donald Trump used to describe abortion in that debate was really grotesque and graphic and misleading. I feel bad even repeating it here, but it's important to talk about and it was on national TV. So here's a quote from Donald Trump from the last presidential debate. He said, if you're going with what Hillary is saying, in the ninth month, you can take the baby and rip the baby out of the womb of the mother just prior to the birth of the baby. Can you talk about that language? Like, where did he get the idea to say that abortion is, quote, ripping a baby out of the womb? And what impact does that language have? Well, first, to uh, quote Shonda Rhimes and correct Donald Trump, uh, what he was describing was a C-section, uh, and it's quite a normal procedure uh, when it comes to pregnancy. But, you know, this language um, comes straight out of the anti-choice movement. Um, you know, last year, we saw the Planned Parenthood videos um, get released that were highly edited, um, forensic analysts have looked at them and saw that they were, you know, said that they were discredited. They were clearly, um, misleading. Um, but a lot of the language that the anti-choice activists used to talk about those videos was this like ripping fetuses apart and all that stuff. And the point of it is to kind of shame people who are seeking abortions and get people to think that it's, it's gory and it's somehow a awful, terrible medical procedure when in reality, it's actually about five minutes long. Um, I know because I was there, I had one. Um, what he was saying was so ridiculously inaccurate that I was sitting there like, he literally has no idea how an abortion is performed. Um, and this isn't new, right? Because last year during the Republican primary debates, we saw Carly Fiorina do the same thing. It's not new what he's doing. And a lot of politicians have done this. Again, it's all part of this, like, trying to shame and stigmatize and, like, add to this, like, gore factor. It's weird how abortion is treated as often some kind of purely political, abstract issue. Because it's not. It's a basic part of healthcare for the millions of people with uteruses who get abortions every year. And people have been performing abortions for all of human history. Like, literally, one of the oldest pieces of writing we have in the world, the Code of Hammurabi, written nearly 4,000 years ago, mentions abortion. And here we are, millennia later, and for some reason it's still hard to talk about abortion. It often feels hard to find the right words to talk about abortion, 
Are you pro-choice or anti-abortion or pro-women? Because it's such a personal thing. This isn't about being a Democrat or a Republican. It's about our bodies. And everyone has their own relationship to their body. So all the language we have seems to fall short of describing this 4,000-year-old, very normal medical procedure. What's important, though, is hearing those personal stories and listening to them, whether they're being told on a TV show or on a national political stage. For far too long, those stories have been silenced. The music on today's show is by the band Taco Cat, your Seattle-based feminist rock band, Taco Cat. This week's listener comment keeps it short. Sylvia VT left us a five-star review on iTunes and wrote just two words, necessary, indeed. For some reason, that cracks me up. Thanks to Sylvia and everyone else who shares the show with their friends. Earn your women, gender, and sexuality studies degree online. Explore the role of race, social class, age, ability, appearance, and sexual identity. Play in women's everyday lives. Join the nation of do what you love. Push up your sleeves, make the world better. Oregon State University. Learn more at ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash WGSS. That's ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash WGSS. Propaganda is produced by the team here at Bitch Media. Bitch is an independent, nonprofit feminist media organization. We're entirely funded by our Beehive members, subscribers, and like-minded sponsors. So if you like today's episode of Propaganda, please become a member online at bitchmedia.org today. Let us know you liked the show in your order comments. Our jingle is by Mux and Owen Worker. Additional music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Look up their creative and minimalist sounds by going to Google and typing in sessions.blue. And the show is produced by Alex Ward at the studios of X-Ray FM, an independent radio station in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for listening. Yeah.